Well, children, thank you very much indeed for doing such a terrific job of explaining the significance of all those Christmas decorations. Uh, there's a lot more to it than I think most of us realised. And um, adults, if you want to audition, as I'm sure you do, for the Christmas play next year, please do see Alita straight after the service. There's already a long list. Now, if somebody does ask you, uh, what is the real message of Christmas? Uh, what would you say? Uh, we're going to spend just a moment thinking about that. And what I want you to do is stand up, stretch your legs, go and speak to someone you haven't spoken to yet this morning, and say, um, hello, my name is George or Mary or whatever it is. Can you please tell me what is the real meaning of Christmas? Two minutes, off you go. Christmas. Um, if you ask 10 different people, you're quite likely to get 10 different answers. And so this year I decided to go back to the very beginning and ask this question, how did the first generation of Christians understand Christmas? Uh, what did the coming of Christ into the world mean for them? And the answer is actually not what most people think. Uh, the passage that shed light on this for me is uh, the book of Acts, chapter 10, verses 42 and 43, and there it is on the screen. Not a text, I think, that we normally associate with Christmas, and yet there is a surprising amount of Christmas treasure in it. Uh, the Apostle Peter here is talking to a soldier called Cornelius. He's telling him about Jesus. And this is what he says. Jesus commanded us, that of course is the apostles, to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him, that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Now, as you know, um, Christians celebrate the coming of Christ in the season that we call Advent. Uh, the word Advent comes from the Latin meaning arrival. And traditionally, Advent begins on December the 1st. And for 2,000 years, Advent celebrates the arrival of Jesus Christ, not actually for the first time, but for the second so, during Advent, Christians celebrate his return to earth and with his return, the end of this present age and the beginning of a completely new age in a completely new world. And the interesting thing is that the return of Christ is celebrated more than any other event in the New Testament. 
I wonder if you knew that. And yet, if you think about it, it's not actually very surprising. Because if the Bible is going to give us any clues at all as to the meaning of our existence, then the Bible must tell us, mustn't it, where we came from and where we're going. Which is, of course, precisely what it does. Because the Bible begins in the Old Testament by telling us about creation, uh, how it all began. And when we turn to the New Testament, we find that it's all pointing to what's going to happen at the end. But over the last hundred years or so, men and women have decided to ignore these tremendous truths, as well as the God who gave them to us, and the result is the confusion and muddle about our identity and our destiny that we see everywhere today. So the way that many people today think about these things has been given a number of uh, clever labels by philosophers and great thinkers. And in their wisdom, they've given us things like existentialism and postmodernism and relativism and a number of other isms. But in each case, the picture is always the same. So for just a moment, I want you to imagine our world today as a vast balloon in which we're all traveling through space and time. We're all there, the young and the old, uh, the students, the children, the retired folks, the sporty types, the musicians, Every human activity is present in this vast balloon as it wanders through space and time. And imagine for a moment that uh, as we're going along that somebody comes up to you and says, well, I hope you don't mind me asking, but I've been thinking about this for a while. Can you tell me where we're going? And uh, you think for a moment and you reply, well, actually, I've no idea. And uh, as far as I know... Nobody else does either. But your new friend isn't satisfied with that, so they persevere, and he says to you, well, if we don't know where we're going, how did all of this start? Where have we actually come from? And uh, you say, well, as far as I know, uh, no one's got an answer for that question either. So there we are, floating in our balloon through space. We don't know where the journey started, we don't know where it's going to finish. We've just got to make the best of it, which is, of course, the way that many, many, many people think today. And yet all the time, God has given us this wonderful book, which gives us the only clue to true beginnings and true ends. And what I want us to see this morning is that in the Christian calendar, this is very interesting, we start at the end and we go to the beginning. In other words, in Advent, which begins on December the 1st, we celebrate the return of Jesus Christ. And it's only on December the 25th that we celebrate the first coming of Christ. And if you think about it, that's really rather odd. To start with what's going to happen at the end... And then only after that to celebrate the beginning of Christ's life and work here on planet Earth. 
Now that is the order that we find in our Bible text this morning. I hope it will appear on the screen once again. Because in Acts chapter 10 and verse 42, we're told that Jesus commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as the judge of the living and the dead. Now that is obviously talking about the second coming of Christ, isn't it? And then in verse 43, we go back to the Old Testament where we're told that all the prophets testify about Jesus, that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Now that's really very odd because verse 43 is saying that the Old Testament was always pointing to the Christmas story and the reason that Jesus came into the world. He came the first time to provide the only way for us to be forgiven and to be put right with God. And uh, verse 43 is saying that that is right at the heart of the Old Testament message. But you see, when we come to the message given to the apostles in verse 42, what do we see? Well, we find they've left all of that behind. In fact, of the 27 books in the New Testament, only two of them record the details of Jesus' birth and his early childhood, Matthew and Luke. And in the rest of the New Testament, the spotlight is always on what's going to happen at the end. Now, that's really rather strange. We're not expecting that. So what then is the real message of Christmas? Well, verses 42 and 43 are actually a summary of the message that Jesus Christ gave to the early church, to the very first generation of Christians to take out into the world. Now the context here is really important. Uh, we're going to pick up the context from verse 39, if Brenda could just put that up on the screen for us. Peter says, We are witnesses of everything Jesus did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. He was not seen by all the people. By the way, that is one of the most remarkable facts about the resurrection. The risen Jesus was not seen by the general public, but by, what does it say? Verse 43, sorry, verse, uh, which verse is it? 41. But by witnesses whom God had already chosen, by us, in other words, the apostles, who ate and drank with him, after he rose from the dead. So in those marvellous 40 days, after he rose from the dead, there was Jesus uh, with his disciples, doing ordinary everyday things, eating and drinking with them. But those 40 days were also a period of concentrated teaching for the first leaders of the early church. In other words, Peter and the others were given final instructions before Jesus ascended to his father's throne. What were those final instructions? 
Well, you can't miss it. Uh, In verse 42, the apostles were to preach to the people. Uh, And immediately I say that, your heart sink, groans, oh dear, preaching. A word that's fallen on really hard times, hasn't it? People often say, won't they, "Uh, please don't preach to me. Because the word today, of course, is associated with um, religious buildings, uh, with somebody standing six feet above contradiction, uh, with a message that is essentially out of date. But you see, in the first century, when Peter used the word preach, it wasn't actually a religious word at all. It was used in everyday life to describe an urgent message sent into your community by the king, the governor, or whoever was in charge. I guess today we'd probably describe it as breaking news. So what verse 42 is saying is that Christ's command to the church was to broadcast the breaking news about him to everybody. And every Christian is involved in it. So, for example, uh, you don't need to turn to it, you can if you want to, but in Acts chapter 8, uh, when we read that marvellous account of the Apostle Philip uh, sitting in the chariot with the Ethiopian financial genius, the Greek word for preaching the gospel is used. But there's no sermon. It's only a private one-to-one conversation. And actually, my guess is that the amount of pulpit time given to preaching in the early church was actually fairly small. Because one of the great things about the first Christians is that everyone was engaged in preaching. You didn't have to wear strange clothing. You didn't have to stand in a pulpit. Everybody was spreading the breaking news about Jesus to their friends. So what then is this marvellous news that we are to broadcast? This is is really the message of Christmas. That the news we are to broadcast concerns the two comings of Christ. So in verse 42, Jesus is effectively saying to the apostles, tell the people, I'm coming again. And then in verse 43, The prophets tell us why Jesus came the first time. Now let's look at this just a little more closely because there are one or two surprises here. Uh, In verse 42, the apostles are to tell the people that Jesus is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. Now I want you to think carefully about that. Because, you see, what it means is that the Apostles' message is not actually centred on Christmas Day. It's not even centred on Good Friday or Easter Sunday. None of those three days is actually at the heart of the Apostles' message. No, the day, and they actually call it the Day of the Lord, is the day when Jesus returns. That, of course, is why we say in the Apostles' Creed, which we do when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, he shall come again to judge the living and the dead. Now, you see, what this means, and I think it is a surprise, 
is that in the early church, evangelism was not in the first place an invitation to men and women to meet Christ as their saviour. No, it was actually an announcement to everybody that they will meet Jesus on the last day, whether they want to or not. So the apostle, you see, went round telling people that although they might have absolutely no intention whatsoever of bowing the knee to Jesus, one day they would have to bow before him and that their destiny was in his hands. Very important. Not in their hands, which most people thought. No, in his hands. And so I really ought to say to you this morning that all of us in this room, you and me, will see Jesus as he is today. We'll see him face to face. It's an awesome thought. But it's true of everyone here this morning, whether they're Christian believers or not. So that was the apostolic message. And uh, just to show you I'm not sucking this out of the end of my thumb, I want to give you one example of how faithful they were to it. Turn in your Bible, please, to Acts chapter 17. Uh, Brenda might put it up on the screen. Because here we're looking at the end of the famous sermon that Paul preached in Athens. And uh, in verses 30 and 31, we find that Paul says precisely what he was commissioned to say. Verse 30. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance. By the way, let's just think about that for a moment. Uh, Isn't that a marvellous picture of the mercy of God to rebels like me and you? Uh, You know, until we heard the good news about Jesus, God was willing to overlook our ignorance. But now, in other words, when people can no longer claim to be ignorant, he commands all people everywhere to repent. Now pay attention. Verse 31. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. And he's given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. So friends, you see, that is the day that is at the very centre of the Apostles' message. And what a wonderful day it will be. Because you see, unlike our judgments, which are always so flawed, his judgment will be absolutely perfect. Because he will know with his knowledge, which of course is the knowledge of God, and he will be able with his power, which is the power of God, to decide where you and I belong. And of course it'll be wonderful in another sense as well. Because we all know, don't we, that we're living in an unjust world where so often uh, the innocent and the poor are exploited and abused and at the same time the corrupt and the powerful always seem to go free. But you see, on that day, All the corrupt politicians, all the murderers, all the rapists, all the war criminals, they'll all be judged, and they will be judged justly. And I think it's a very wonderful and actually a very comforting thing 
to remember that justice stands at the end of time. And it means, doesn't it, of course, that in the end we're not living in an unjust world at all because Jesus is going to be the judge. But it is also terrifying. I find it terrifying because, you see, although I've been a Christian for many years, I know that I'm not fit to stand before Jesus. And if I think carefully about what I'm really like, and about what actually goes on in my heart, well, I know that if I have to stand before Jesus on the basis of my track record, the verdict must be guilty. Can't actually be anything else. By the way, that is actually the first thing that the Holy Spirit does when he comes into a person's heart. The first thing he does is not to give us Uh, spiritual gifts and experiences that make us feel good about ourselves. No, the first thing he does is to show us that we are sinners and have got no hope whatsoever of being able to stand before the Lord on our own merits. In other words, he totally knocks the self-righteousness out of us until we start to see ourselves from God's point of view. And yet, as a Christian, I also know that I will be able to stand before him because of what is said in Acts chapter 10, verse 43, where we began. Do you remember that verse? Verse 43 says, All the prophets testify about Jesus, that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. And you see, Christians, real Christians, have believed in Jesus and God has given them forgiveness of sins through his name. So let's summarize. What did the prophets actually say? Well, what the prophets foretold was that the God who would judge the world on the last day has come beforehand into this world to prepare his people for that moment In other words, he's come the first time to prepare us for the second time so that there can be a happy ending. That's actually why the baby was born, to bring God's forgiveness from heaven. Not far from heaven, that must await the second coming. No, the baby came to bring God's forgiveness to all who would believe and trust in him. So you see, to ignore Christ's first coming is to be totally unprepared for the greatest day in the history of the universe, the final day, when this present world order is going to come to an end and a perfect new world will begin with none of the horrible things that make our lives so miserable today. And I think, therefore, in the light of that, the really important question this morning must be, what have you done with the message of Christmas? You know, if Jesus came the first time to prepare men and women for his return, are you prepared? Are you ready? 
You know, when you find yourself standing before Jesus the judge, and Jesus asks, as he will, what have you done with the provision that I made for your sins on the cross? What will you say? I do hope you know. Just in case you don't, and you want to be sure, we want to give you the opportunity to investigate these things a little bit more carefully with a member of the ministry team. So after the service, I'm going to be standing here, and all you need to do is to come forward and put your contact details on the card that was on the seat on your chair when you came in. And we'll make an appointment for somebody in the ministry team to meet with you and take you through this little booklet, which is called Just Grace. It's quite the finest little booklet I've ever encountered on these things. And uh, if you want to do that, won't you please fill in the form, come and hand it to me afterwards, so that you will be ready to meet Jesus when he returns. Well, let's pray. Well, our, our gracious God, as we look around our world today, we see so much that is broken and messed up. Crime, poverty, war, broken families, disease, all the painful consequences of our rebellion against you. Thank you for the real message of Christmas which reminds us that things won't always be this way. That Jesus came on the first Christmas to prepare us for the awesome day when he returns. And I pray for each one of us here this morning that if we have not yet done so, that we would cry out to Jesus from our hearts and ask him, for the forgiveness of our sins. And I ask in his precious name. Amen.